you have your Bible, I'll ask you to turn to John chapter 1 today. It's been a couple of weeks, but we are trying to make our way through the Gospel of John. And so far, we have made it to verse 43. Hopefully, Lord willing, today we will make it through the rest of John chapter 1. I want to talk to you today on the topic of a skeptic meets the Savior. Without a doubt, one of the greatest presidents of our country's history is Abraham Lincoln. What many of you may not know is that early on as a young man, Abraham Lincoln fell into doubt and skepticism. He actually became an avid reader of anti-Christian literature. And so cynical was he that in the 1830s, Lincoln actually wrote a book disparaging the Bible and attacking the deity of Christ. But Lincoln had a concerned friend who thought he would challenge Lincoln's budding atheism. His name was Samuel Hill. History has mostly forgotten the influence of Samuel Hill, but without him, we may have not had President Lincoln. See, he feared that such a book would doom Lincoln's promising political career, and so Samuel Hill snatched up that book and threw it in the stove and burned it before it could be mass-published. And Samuel Hill was also an avid prayer warrior, and he committed from that day that he would pray for Lincoln's salvation. Well, time went on, and in 1849, Lincoln's life was changed again when he inherited a significant library upon the death of his father-in-law, a man named Robert Todd. And there was one book in particular which caught Lincoln's attention. It was the book entitled The Christian's Defense. It was an apologetic work which proved the reliability of the Bible. And as Lincoln read it, many of his challenges and his arguments against God began to crack. He would later write to a friend, I've been reading a work on the evidence of Christianity and am now convinced of the truth of the Christian religion. It wasn't long after that until Lincoln began reading the Bible every day. And if you notice his speeches, he started peppering his speeches with scripture quotations. Well, a little bit further down the road, 1860 rolls around. Lincoln is elected president. One year later, the Civil War breaks out. Because of the relentless pressure of the war and then the tragic death of his son, Willie, it caused a crisis in Lincoln's life, and he sought out a pastor whom he could confide in. That man, also largely forgotten by history, was named Phineas Gurley. He was a Presbyterian minister. Of course, we know what happened in 1865 when Lincoln was assassinated there at Ford's Theater. But before his passing, Gurley and Lincoln had many meetings. And here is what the pastor wrote. He said, quote, I had frequent and intimate conversations with Lincoln on the Bible. And in the latter days of his chastened and weary life, he said, the president said with tears in his eyes that he had lost confidence in everything but God. And he now believed his heart was changed, and he loved the Savior. Now, many secular historians will, may not tell that side of the story of Lincoln's life, but isn't it interesting to know that he started out as a skeptic, and then he came to the Savior? Now, track with me through the life of Lincoln, the, the links in the chain leading to his faith. There was Samuel Hill, the faithful man who prayed for him, there was the author of that apologetics book. Then there was the faithful pastor, Phineas Gurley, who all played an influential role in leading Lincoln down the road to meet Jesus. And it reminded me of what Paul wrote about some planting, some watering, and some harvesting. No matter where we are in that process, we ought to be faithful in what God has called us to do. And this story also helps us to understand the the power of discipleship making. One soul reaching another soul until after 2,000 years of church history, the process is still happening today, and here we are. The church is marching on. The gospel is still bring, being preached. Disciples are still being made. If you're here today, it's because somebody took serious the call of discipleship and reached out to you to tell you about Jesus. And in John chapter 1, we see how Jesus has been calling his first disciples. 
In our last message, we saw John the Baptist as he stood there on the banks of the Jordan River. Behold the Lamb of God as he pointed that finger to Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the Bible tells us that Andrew and John went and followed Jesus. And then Andrew turned around and he went and got his brother Peter and brought him to Jesus. And now we see that process again in John chapter 1 starting in verse 43. As Philip meets Jesus, and then Nathanael is brought by Philip to Jesus. Now, interesting thing here as we read this story, just like Lincoln who started out as a skeptic and then met the Savior, old Nathanael starts out as a skeptic. And you're going to see the skepticism in his voice. Uh, Can anything good come out of Nazareth as he is introduced to Jesus? So in today's message, we're talking about a skeptic meets the Savior. And I want us, as we study this passage, to notice the the links in the chain of God's providence that led to Nathaniel and Philip coming to the Lord. And then you can think about the links in the chain of your life of how you were led to Jesus. And if maybe you can't say that today, maybe today will be the beginning of that process. So as we notice our text this morning, we'll begin in verse 43. I want you to notice, number one, an invitation from Jesus for discipleship. An invitation from Jesus for discipleship. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So we meet Philip here who is invited for discipleship. Now the Bible does not contain much biographical detail about who Philip was, especially when you compare him to some of the other more prominent disciples in the Twelve. But what we do know of Philip's life is gleaned exclusively from the Gospel of John. And from what we can tell of Philip's personality, he's something of a pragmatic. He is a glass-half-empty kind of guy. He's a bean counter. Uh, He's one of those type of people. And the reason that I say this is because later on in Jesus' ministry, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 with the fishes and the loaves, Philip is there with Jesus. And John chapter 6, and starting in verse 6, tells us a little bit of detail there. Jesus says to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now notice Philip's response. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now keep in mind, Philip has already witnessed Jesus cure the spots of the leper and give sight to the blind. And he's already raised somebody from the dead, so surely Jesus could do this. But you see a little window into Philip's personality there as we we meet him here in chapter 1. He's what I would call the apostolic administrator. He's the logistics guy. He's the pragmatic. And obviously, his knack for organization, his bottom line approach mentality to things, made him a valuable member of Jesus' team. But here's a guy who's also nearsighted in his faith perspective, which meant that he had some growing to do and some learning in the discipleship process. If Philip were alive today and then Philip were in the church, he would be the chairman of the wet blanket committee. Right, And we've all met those kind of folks in the church. Pastor, we don't have enough money for that kind of project. Pastor, we've never done things like that way here before. That's the kind of guy that Philip was. Now, as you notice here in our text, Philip's calling is unique from John and Andrew. They were appointed to Jesus by John the Baptist, remember? But the Bible says here, Verse 43, that Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said, follow me. In other words, Jesus went looking for Philip. Amen? This raises a question. What was it about Philip that made Jesus choose him? I mean, what was it about his character that made him stand out as as an individual? Peter, obviously, he's a leader. You would understand why Jesus could have chose him. John, he's incredibly loyal. And then Andrew, Andrew's a networker. He knows how to 
bring people to Christ. But then you think about Philip. He's not such an obvious choice. I love what Ray Stedman, the great Bible commentator, wrote on this passage. He said, quote, Philip is not the disciple that we would have picked for our team. He's intelligent, quiet, shy, and a bit pessimistic. He knows too much arithmetic to be adventurous. Leaving behind his comfort zone for an unpredictable life on the road with Jesus was not on his bucket list. No one ever thought of Philip, and that's why Jesus found him. Amen? You could apply that question to yourself. Why in the world would Jesus pick me? There's nothing special about me. I don't hold claim to title or land. I'm not cut above anybody else in terms of intelligence or in terms of money or influence. Why would Jesus pick somebody like me? Well, what you notice here, friend, as Jesus invites him, he uses just two words. It's so simple. Follow me. I love that, don't you? He didn't say, hey, be perfect. He didn't say, go give so much money to the temple first and then come follow me. He didn't say, Philip, why don't you get your life in order and, and then you can come follow me. No, he just said, follow me. As you are, with all of your problems and your quirks and your, your doubting and your situations, your, your burdens, just follow me, Philip. And what I see here is that follow me is an invitation to transformation. That's how it begins when Christ invites us on the journey of discipleship. It's an invitation to be transformed, to walk with Jesus, to be changed by Him, and to look less like ourselves and more like Him. And notice this, when Jesus chose His first followers, He went to an unlikely place and He selected the most unlikely people. I mean, he didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to Jerusalem. The Bible says he went to Galilee and he searched for Philip. He didn't go to the religious schools and and look for the most learned scholars. He didn't go to the ranks of the military leaders and search for the one with the most brilliant mind. Uh, He stayed away from the skilled statesman or the famous orator. And Jesus, the Bible says, went to the shores of Galilee and he said, Give me the ones that nobody wants. I'll take the fisherman. I'll take the tax collector. Yes, I'll even take the traitor Judas. And I'll have Philip on my team as well. You see, friend, as you listen today, I want you to know Jesus is calling you from wherever uh, situation you are in life. Mothers and factory workers and doctors and mechanics and teachers and truck drivers. Jesus is calling us even when we aren't wanting to be called, when we aren't looking for Him. He comes looking for us just as He did to search out Galilee and find Philip. He finds us, friend, when we're lost. He finds us when we're searching. He finds us when we're broken. He finds us when we're skeptical and says, follow me. Amen? There's a great story told about a sculptor who had ruined a beautiful piece of Carrera marble, very rare, very expensive piece of rock. It said that it was left in the courtyard of the cathedral in Florence, Italy, for almost a hundred years. Nobody would touch it. Artisans thought that that block is beyond repair. It's flawed. That artist already tried to work on it, and he messed it up. It can't be used. But then in 1505, a young sculptor by the name of Michelangelo strolled into town and he was asked sir could you do anything with this throwaway piece of marble sitting in the courtyard well he measured the block he carefully noted the imperfections he noticed the places where the workmen of the previous generation had had bungled it to his mind as he saw that marred block of rock he got an image of a shepherd boy And finally, after three years, he worked steadily. He chiseled skillfully. He shaped that marble. And when one of his students was finally allowed to come in and see his finished masterwork, there it was. It stood 18 feet high. It weighed nine tons. And it resembled a lifelikeness. He created David out of a piece of marble that somebody had already messed up. Every other artist had looked at and said, 
I can't get anything out of it. Oh, my goodness, friend, do you see how much that applies to your life and mine? God, praise God, He takes the rejects of the world and He transformed them into disciples and into fishers of men. Aren't you glad for a Savior this morning who comes and seeks you out and finds you when you've been beat up, when you've been marred, when you've been scarred and thrown away by the world? God says, I'm not done with you yet. I'm coming to your town. I'm coming to your home. I'm coming to your church pew, to your pit of depression and despair. And I'm calling you to follow me. You see, He finds us. He calls us out of the ordinary. He calls us out of that predictable, introverted life. He calls us out of sin and out of a a small, selfish plan that we might have for ourselves. He calls us out of a a darkness. He calls us out of our addiction. He calls us out of a checkered past. None of that matters to Him. He says, just let me get a hold of Him. Let Him follow me. Let Him walk with me. Uh, Let her listen to my word. And I'll change them on the road of life. You see, it's wonderful this morning as I think about my Savior. I don't have to be the smartest. I don't need to be the strongest. I may not be the richest. I don't have a big megaphone. I'm not the most popular. I don't have to be the most talented or have it all figured out because I'm following Him and He's got all the answers. He's got all the power. He's got the resources. And friend, when you're following Him, He'll change you. So we see number one, an invitation from Jesus for discipleship. Friend, are you following Him today? Can you say, He's my Savior, He's my Lord, He's my teacher? If you can't, today's the day for you to respond to that call. Number two, I want you to see this. Not only an invitation from Jesus for discipleship, but an introduction to Jesus through friendship. An introduction to Jesus through friendship. We'll pick up the story. Again, in verse 45, the Bible says this, that when Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, you got to love this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. (laughs) An introduction to Jesus through friendship. Philip's first move after he meets Jesus is he understands the one in whom he's been following. He knew his Old Testament. He knew what the prophets had said about the Messiah. And he put A and B together and realized this man doesn't teach like anybody else. There's something about him that makes him different. I've never seen somebody with such compassion. I've never seen somebody teach with such profundity. I've never seen him do the things he can do. Nathaniel, you've got to come and see this Jesus. This is discipleship, isn't it? Each one, reach one. When you're changed by Jesus, you go and search out for somebody else who needs to be changed by Jesus. It's the same model all throughout John's narrative of discipleship. Now, we often make reaching others for Christ more complicated than it needs to be, don't we? I was reading a study this week. It was done by the Institute of American Church Growth. These are people that study the rise and fall of church. You know what they said the number one determining factor in a person's conversion was? It wasn't their family history. It wasn't the erudite or Bible knowledge of the person sharing Christ. You know what the number one thing was? They said that 75 of new believers came to Christ through a friend already attending church who reached them and explained the gospel to them on a one-on-one basis. Some of you may be here today because you had a friend who invited you and said, hey, you got to come check out and see what God's doing down here. I'm going to show you how much of a nerd I am. Y'all know I'm a nerd. I don't apologize for it. I can't hide it anymore. But I, I love uh, the, the writings of C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien. Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings. Two literary giants of the past century. They gave us those incredible worlds of Narnia and Middle Earth. But I was reading about their lives this past week. Tolkien and Lewis were actually friends 
at Oxford University before they were world-famous authors. They both lived through World War I. And through the horror of that war, Tolkien became a believer, and C.S. Lewis became an atheist. Well, while they were both showing an interest in literature and poetry and languages, they didn't have the same worldview, like I said. Lewis was a hardcore atheist. Well, he notes in his journal on September 19, 1931, that he had one of the most important conversations he'd ever had in his life. And it was when he and J.R. Tolkien were walking through a park on campus. And their walk, their conversation turned towards faith. And the book said that Tolkien laid out his reasons for why he was a Christian. And he suggested to Lewis, hey, the story of Jesus isn't just a myth. It isn't just a bedtime story. It isn't just something that's been invented by the church to keep us in good behavior. In fact, he suggested that history is actually God's story of creation and fall and redemption. And that God is the author. His son Jesus is the main hero who enters into the story to save humanity from death and sin and Satan. And history is his story. That was a perspective that C.S. Lewis had never considered before. And he thought to himself, you know, if a genius like my friend Tolkien and many other brilliant writers that I respect are believers, then perhaps Christianity deserves a little bit more investigation. And the story goes that nine days later, after that walk and after that conversation, as he mulled those things over and as the Holy Spirit spoke to him, C.S. Lewis became a Christian. And if you've ever picked up a C.S. Lewis book, do yourself a favor and read Mere Christianity. It will speak to you intellectually and spiritually. He spent the rest of his life writing books about Jesus Christ. But here's what he said in Surprised by Joy. He said about becoming a, a skeptic and then coming to the Savior. He said, that which I greatly feared had come last and come upon me. I gave in. And admitted that God was God. Knelt and prayed perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Some of you can relate to that. Because you didn't want to be found by God. Your heart was hard. You had doubts and skepticisms. You didn't want to believe in God. You were running. You didn't like the notion of being accountable to Him or the doctrine of sin. You didn't want to be found. But He found you and He changed your life. And today you can't deny this is who I used to be. But this is who I am today. I don't think like that anymore. I got my worldview corrected because I met the one that the prophets foretold that the Old Testament predicted the Lamb of God, the Son of God. But as I, I tell you that story and as we point to this friendship between Philip and Nathaniel, don't underestimate your influence. You can have more of an impact on people's lives than you might realize. Think of how history was changed because of one conversation between Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, because of one conversation between Philip and Nathaniel. And you know who I'm talking about, that one person that you're burdened for, that you're trying to reach. Don't give up on them. Keep sowing that seed. Keep watering that seed. Keep inviting them to church because you never know that impact, what God can do through that. Listen, you don't have to be a preacher to do it. You don't have to have a doctorate in theology to be used by the Lord. You don't even have to have all the answers. I mean, look here in the text. Philip said to Nathaniel, he said, just, just come and see. He didn't get into all the doctrine and explain everything. He just said, come and see. You see, what you do have that cannot be overturned or explained away is your story of how God changed your life. It's irrefutable. And if you share that, that's powerful enough to be a testimony into somebody else's life of what God can do for them. Now, let's be realistic. Sometimes you're going to run into skeptics. You're going to run into that hard-hearted person just like Philip started with Nathaniel. Nathaniel is initially skeptical because when he first hears about Jesus' origin, you see what he said? He said... Can, <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, it would be like, can anything good come out of Candler? <laughs> Inca High School? Come on. Fill in your own background there. 
You see, because of him, Nathaniel could not fathom how someone as significant as the Messiah could come from such an insignificant, backwoods, hick town as Galilee or Nazareth. So be ready. Be ready for roadblocks. Be ready for excuses. We all know the excuse, don't we? Somebody said that an excuse is a skin of reason stuffed with a lie. We've all tried to invite somebody. We've all tried to reach somebody. And we get the excuses, don't we? You know what they are. Oh, I'm busy on Sundays. It's my only day off from work and I'm tired. It's my day to watch football or to go to the grocery store or to do my errands. Some of you probably even used those same excuses at one time, didn't you? I don't go to church. How about this one? I don't go to church because everybody down there is a hypocrite. Isn't that one of the most often used ones? I don't go down there because they're all a bunch of phonies. Well, I always say to that, of course there's hypocrites in the church, and you know what? There's always room for one more. <laughs> you know, you don't have to explain everything. You just say, come and see. You know what those excuses are? Most of those excuses are smoke screens from people whose hearts are wounded. They're hurt. They got their feelings hurt in church in the past. Or they got judged by some Christian. Or they've come to believe in a straw man Jesus. Not the real Jesus of the Bible, but the History Channel Jesus or the Facebook Jesus. Or some other false uh, image of who Christ is. And you know what we need to do? We need to remind them of who the real Jesus is. Hey, I understand the church hurt you in the past. I understand that uh, you, you, they looked at, down upon you, but that wasn't Jesus that did that. Jesus will never look down on you. Jesus will never disappoint you. Jesus will never judge you. He won't condemn you. He'll point out your sin and say, it's time to repent and come follow me. But He loves you. And we need to take people back to the simplicity of Jesus just like Philip did with Nathaniel. Hey, I understand your skepticisms. I get you that you've got questions. I thought the same thing. But just come and see what I'm talking about. You see, Philip knew. He knew that once Nathaniel experienced Jesus, that all those arguments, all those roadblocks were going to fade away. I like what I saw on a church sign one time. I was driving by a little country Baptist church. It said, on the outside of that sign, it said, Fishers of men, we catch them and Jesus cleans them. <laughs> Isn't that good? You see, listen to me, church. We've convinced ourselves not to reach some folk because we think, oh, they're too far gone. They can't be saved. We use these excuses, don't we? Oh, she's an addict. She's depressed. That guy over there, he's got a million questions, and I can't answer him. That guy, he's a hardcore atheist. You'll never see him darken the door of a church. She's got a past. And we look at the excuses, and we look at the things in people's life, and we convince ourselves, you know what? Forget about them. Nathaniel had issues, Right? But Philip didn't let it deter him anyway. He said, just come and see. I'm your friend, aren't I? Don't you trust me? Trust me with this. You, listen to me. I think this needs to be said in every single pulpit around the country. Let them come with their problems. Let them come with their addiction and their depression. Let them come to the altar with all the drama in their life. Don't make them clean up their life. Let them come with the sin problem that they're dealing with in their heart. They came to Jesus as a skeptic. Friend, listen to me. I believe the Word of God is still powerful today. I believe the Holy Spirit can still break down somebody's hard heart. Hey, listen to me. The church is still a hospital for sinners. If only they could behold Him. If only they could get a touch of His grace. If only they could hear His voice speak into their life. If only they could come and see, they'd find what they'd been searching for their whole life. And when they meet Him, I'm telling you, all that other stuff will get faded away. All the burials will get broke down. All the arguments that they used to use, they'll forget those arguments when they meet the greatest person who's ever lived, who gives the greatest offer that could ever be given. Come and follow me. 
Friend, I still believe today that somebody in the church this morning believed that Jesus is enough. We've made it too complicated in the church today. I think the Word of God in Jesus is enough. And we need to be reminded of that in our churches today. You see, we think in the church, oh, we've got to be seeker sensitive. We can't offend nobody. We've got to make an environment that's comfortable. And we've got to soften the message. And we've got to do what we can to meet budget. Hey, we need to be about Jesus. And people go to churches looking for the wrong thing. Oh, I'll go to the fun church. they got all the activities. Uh, they do the, the fun things on the holidays. Or I want to go to the cutting-edge church. They're always doing something new and something different. I want to go to that church because they've got exciting music. I want to take my kids to that church because they've got a youth group. Man, I'm telling you. Oh, we're not going to that church. That's the woke church down there. We're going to this church. It's the Republican church where everybody thinks the way that I do and believes the way that I do. Or, or I want to go to that church down there because that's where the money's at. That's where the doctors are. That's where the lawyers are. That's where the business leaders are. Have we forgot about it? Come and see. I don't need all that other stuff. Let's make it about Jesus. Let's put Him in the middle. Let's let Him change people's lives. Let's let Him speak into people's problems. You see, what Philip did for Nathaniel was just point him to Jesus. I don't care about being a trendy church. It's obvious, right? I'm not wearing skinny jeans and a wrapped up t-shirt. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. I'm not worried about being a trendy church or the political church or the legalistic church that marks off the checklist when you come in the door. Let's be the church that just says, Hey, come and meet Jesus. Come and see what He's doing in this place. You'll come and get a taste and see that the Lord is good. And you'll say, why didn't I get down there sooner? We see number one. We see an invitation from Jesus for discipleship. And then number two, an introduction to Jesus through friendship. What friendships are you cultivating so that you might lead into the Lord? And then number three, I want you to see this. An investigation of Jesus' Lordship. Oh, Nathaniel came to Jesus with all his questions, didn't he? Look at this interchange here. When Nathaniel met Jesus, it didn't take long for all that cynicism to crumble. And he became a follower. In fact, all it took was just a matter of minutes Nathaniel spent with Jesus and Jesus revealed everything about Nathaniel and then some. And in fact, if you'll study this passage, we see Jesus exercises one of the attributes of God. And that word is omniscience. Don't be thrown off by that. It just means perfect knowledge of all things, past, present, and future. And Jesus, he begins to explain to Nathaniel with perfect omniscience, everything about his life, thus proving that he was God. Notice, Jesus knew who he was. Verse 47, and Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That's pretty interesting considering that Jesus already knew something about the prejudice of Nathanael. In other words, as he sees him coming, Jesus says, Here's a guy. He's no hypocrite. He's a truly Israelite. What you see is what you get. He simply says what's on his mind. Some of you live with people like that, don't you? No filter. <laughs> that was Nate. In the same way, think about this, friend. Jesus knows you. Hey, you're not hiding anything from him. He knows who you are in your heart of hearts. That you're a doubter. That you're a skeptic. He knows that you have a problem with the truth. He knows the thing, deep dark secret that you're trying to hide from everybody else. He knows. He knows who you are. He sees through all the smoke screen, all the chest thumping and all the games that we try and play to present ourselves better than who we are really on Facebook and social media. We try to present this image of who we are when really deep down we're just a broken person searching for somebody to love us. 
Somebody to accept us? What's my purpose? What's, what's God's plan for my life? Jesus knew Nathaniel, and he knows you. He knows all the good, all the bad, all the ugly. He knows the worst thing about you and me. And guess what? He still loves you. Oh, my. He knew who he was. Verse 48, look at this. He knew where he had been. He knew where he had been. This is so good. Verse 48. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. A little bit creepy, but also a little bit convicting too, isn't it? He knew where he had been. I can never hide anything from Mama either, by the way. She always knew where I had been. And I come in a little bit later than I was supposed to. I know where you've been. Now this fig tree. It must have been Nathaniel's quiet place. It would have been like his fortress of solitude, if you will. His man cave. Every man has to have a place where he can just be alone. Amen. All the men said. Amen. Yours may be a lawnmower. It may be the cab of a truck. It may be a deer stand in a tree. Nathaniel's happened to be under this fig tree. And Jesus knew about it. It must have been the place where he met with God to pray. And Jesus' knowledge of Nathaniel's comings and goings were enough to convince him Hey, this guy's got the mail on me. And you know what? He knows where you've been too. He knows your past. He knows about the dark nights and the deep valleys. He knows about the tears that you've cried. He knows about the bad choices that you made. He knows about the sins that led you down that, that pathway. That He knows what you put in your body and the decisions you made. He knows where you wandered away. And he also knows the way that's going to bring you back home. You see, I'm thankful he doesn't hold my past against me today. And when Jesus comes to us, he comes to redeem that past and leave it in history and create for us a new destiny. It's not about where you've been. It's about where you're going. And when you're with him, you're going where he goes. He knew where he had been. He knew who he was. And look at this. He knew what he would see. He knew what he would see, verse 50 and 51. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? And you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say unto you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In one moment... Jesus spoke into the skeptical life of Nathaniel and had that boy turned around doing a 180. This guy knew everything about his past, his present, his future. And in one simple display of his omniscience, Jesus was enough to con said enough to convince Nathaniel of his divinity. And by the way, what was in store was going to be a great life. of One miracle, one blessing, one healing, one adventure after another. And notice here in verse uh, 51, truly, truly, you'll see heaven opened up and the angels ascending and descending. You've got to know your Old Testament. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 28, where old Jacob was running from home. Esau was out for blood to get his brother. And Jacob goes to a place called Bethel. And the Bible said he looked around and he had no place to lay his head so he picked up a stone and pillowed his head on that stone in Genesis 28. And the Bible says that as he was running from his past that God gave him a dream and God spoke to Jacob in his dream. And in the dream he saw a ladder going from heaven to earth and he saw the angels coming up and down on that ladder and God spoke to him and told him that he was going to bless him from a nation was going to proceed from him and that this place, Bethel, would always be a place where he had met God and, and worshipped God and where God had changed his life. And notice what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel here. He says, look, buddy, you stay with me and you're going to discover something, that I am the ladder. I am the living link between heaven and earth. I'm the intersection of deity and humanity. 
that which Jacob saw in Genesis 28, that was me. I'm the one who spoke to him. I'm the ladder. I'm the answer. I'm the resources. I'm the blessing. I'm the reason that the angels go up and down and move across the earth. I knew everything about Jacob, that he was a shyster and a trickster and a liar. And Nathan, I know everything about you. But you know what? Even though you're going to fail me, even though you may disappoint people, I'm still calling you. I'm still blessing you. I'm calling you out of skepticism and into a life of significance. Trust me, and I'm telling you, if you walk with me, you'll see one blessing, one miracle working event after another of God working in and through me. You see, we need to be reminded of that because we hear the call of God in our life to deeper discipleship. And you know what we do? We hold back. We say, no, I can't do that. I can't follow him. Look what it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me my reputation. It's going to cost me my place in my family. It's going to cost me my job. It's going to cost me time, which I don't want to give up. I have these other interests. And to be at the house of God on Sunday, well, that's going to take away. And you know what? We count the cost and we look at those things and we say, no, I'm not going to follow him. But you know what Nathaniel saw and heard? When he realized who Jesus was and what he could do, he left behind that small little life for a life of significance, of following after Jesus. And you know what? I've been at the bedside at the moment of death with some good saints of God who lived their whole life walking with Jesus. And you know what? I never heard them one time say to me, Derek, I wished I wouldn't have followed Jesus. They never say that. You know what? They always say, praise God. God's been faithful to me. I'm glad I've had a walk with Jesus throughout my life. He's never let me down. And friend, you can have that same testimony today. Let me finish with this story. And I'll close. This comes from the Gideons. Many of you know the Gideons and their faithfulness in handing out New Testaments. Their job's getting a lot harder now than what it used to be. There's a story on the Gideon's website about a girl named Rosa. Rosa was at school one morning, and the Gideons were there handing out Bibles. And all her friends were taking one, and she decided she would take one too. She, she took it home, and she showed her dad. And her dad was a hardened man. He was a drinker. And he saw that Bible, and he got mad. And he said, you're not bringing that religion into my house. And so he picked up that Bible, and he stepped outside, and he threw that Bible up. And it landed on the, ha- on the roof of that house. You say, that's weird. Well, when you're drunk, you do weird things. Years later, the story goes that Rosa had married, and she left her father's house but within a year things had turned sour in her life she was pregnant her husband left her so she had to move back in with mom and dad when she got home knocked on the door nobody was home so she sat outside on the front porch she said as she sat there she thought about the brokenness of her life It hadn't turned out the way that she wanted it to. Bad decisions, sin, all of the darkness, you know about that. She said that as she sat there on the porch, she said, God, if you'll speak to me, I'll follow you. And she said at that moment when those words came off of her lips, that a big old gust of wind blew across the roof of that house. And down came tumbling from that roof was that old New Testament Bible that Daddy had taken out and thrown off the roof years ago. I mean, the Bible literally fell out of the sky. She reached down. She picked that thing up. It had been sitting out in the sun and the rain and the snow for years. It was all beaten and tattered up. But as she turned it, she opened up John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Only God could do something like that, amen? 
And she sat there in tears. God had answered her prayer. She repented. She trusted in Jesus Christ. When her daddy came home, he showed, she showed her the Bible. He remembered it. And the story goes that he also got down and gave his life to Jesus Christ. Think of that, a Bible that stayed on the roof for all of those years until that girl was sitting there at just the right moment when the situation was right in her life and she was ready to receive the truth of God. Boom, she prayed and God answered. The omniscience of God. He knew where she had been. He knew who she was. And He spoke to her in an unmistakable way. And I'm wondering if there's somebody in that situation today. Oh, He's been speaking to you. You've been resisting. You've been running, but you can't run anymore. Our musicians are coming. And as they are, we're preparing our hearts for invitation. Maybe you need to respond to this. Maybe you need to follow Jesus Christ today. You need to learn of His grace and His mercy. You need to have your life changed by Him. I can't do it. But Jesus can do it. As you stand and as we get ready for this invitation, Elise is going to be singing a special song today. Hey, the altar is open. I know some of you have come down, but if you need to come today for salvation, or you need to come today for baptism, or you need to come today just to be prayed for, you come. Listen to the words of this song. Let it touch your heart today. This old wooden bench has listened to prayers The desperate have knelt here the heartaches they bear and there's always room for the searching the lost so many have come on their way to the cross if this altar could talk oh the stories you hear of the changed, the forgiven, the healed. How burdens were brought, and how Jesus drew near, and the move of his spirit was real. It would promise there's grace for what you're going. If this altar could talk to you. It's a place of repentance for millions of souls. It's where battles are fought and lives are made whole. Where we cry out for help and we hear from the Lord. Where we're touched by His hand and our hopes are restored. If this altar could talk, oh, the stories you'd hear of the changed, the forgiven the healed how burdens were brought and how Jesus drew near and the move of his spirit was real it would promise there's grace for what you're going through if this altar could talk to you, oh, it's scarred and it's tear-stained. The carpet is worn from the sinners and saints who have knelt here before, and it's running with mercy. And covered with grace and all who have been there will tell you today.
day if this altar could talk all the stories you'd hear of the changed the forgiven the healed how burdens were brought and how Jesus drew spirit was real yet with promise there's grace for what you're going through if this altar could talk to you it would promise One of those is childlike faith. When they realize, I need Jesus. Come on up here, Jensen. This is Jensen. She's nine years old. She came forward today to ask Jesus into her life. Amen. First she came forward and said she just wanted to pray. Then I asked her if she'd ever asked God to save her from her sin and talk to her about the Lord. And She was a little murky about some of those things. But as we began to talk, tears started flowing. And I believe that uh, we got to witness a miracle today. And... Uh, is all worth it. I don't know about you, but I need